Thanks, everyone, for joining us today for today's Thought Leadership Interview Podcast. I'm Nicole O'Brien, third-party risk officer here at Venminder, and I'm thrilled to be joined by Chris Caputo. Chris is an external audit coordinator at CMG Financial. He's an experienced risk analyst, third-party risk management auditor, and regulatory compliance manager. He's also got experience in identifying and mitigating operational, physical, and technological risks with a demonstrated history of working in the financial services and default services industries. He's also holds a bachelor's degree from the College of New Jersey. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Nicole. Of course. So I have a few questions for you. Let's start with the fact that you've been able to work on both sides of the audit world, right? In conducting audits and then supplying information to auditors. So with that respect, what do you find are the common biggest struggles for organizations as it pertains to third-party risk management? And do you have any advice or tips to overcome those challenges? So personally, I I think there are a lot of struggles here and, and a lot of organizations face a lot of different struggles because it is such a complex process um, with so many moving pieces. Uh, I think right. from you know a, a high level perspective, I, I think that the cost of performing reviews and audits is a constant issue, um, and, and it can result in several negative impacts: um, lack of continuous monitoring, limited on-site audits, lack of actionable insight. Um, you know, oftentimes I'll see an increased over-reliance on automated systems to assist in mitigating risk. Kind of takes us down a rabbit hole because automated systems unless they're proprietary actually add another vendor to review um, and usually require some sort of continuous testing to ensure functionality um, and then it, it can also result in the misappropriation of personnel um, you know I, I think another struggle uh, which can also be tied to cost is a lack of ability or capacity to take a proactive approach to risk management as opposed to a reactive one yeah. there's been such an enhanced emphasis, as I'm sure you know, uh, on regulatory oversight, especially compared to just 10 years ago. And what I oftentimes see is uh, companies struggling to maintain the appropriate resources and personnel to stay on ahead of the curve, so to speak. Um, so a lot of times, in my experience, they'll only enhance their risk management tactics and programs in the aftermath of an issue. Um, excuse me. And, yeah. and instead. I think it's hugely important to have a dedicated approach and dedicated personnel to help companies stay ahead of that curve and implement these changes, refocus attention to areas of concern, uh, and put into place mitigating controls before there's an issue. Yeah, absolutely. And, and your yeah. go ahead. Uh, and then just you know from kind of a, a boots on the ground perspective, um, you know, what I alluded to earlier when, when I talked about all the moving pieces, another issue I see is the notion that risk management should be standardized. You know, I think that's a common misconception. I, I, I believe that risk management framework should be standardized to a certain degree, but I don't think that the process of performing a risk review or risk assessment should be standardized. Uh, Third-party risk management is not a one-size-fits-all process, and right. too often I see that being an issue, um, both in companies selecting auditors and domain experts that may not have the appropriate skill sets or knowledge bases to thoroughly audit certain third parties, and also not tailoring their risk management programs 
for the oversight and expectations to be commensurate with the third party that's being reviewed. Um, you know, selecting right. auditors and, and domain experts with the right skill set is, is hugely important. Um, you know, just like with anything else, you need the right tool for the job. And, and having the right tool will not only make it easier in the moment, but will also save you from potential negative residual effects of, of using the wrong tool. So that's why I think it's imperative that the people that you have working these audits do have that knowledge base and do have that, that skill set. And too often I see companies not playing to the strength of the employees tasked with third party oversight. Um, you know, yeah. I, I worked for a firm, as you mentioned, uh, in the area that provides default related services. And one of my responsibilities was to digest legal, regulatory, and client specific updates and then implement any necessary changes into our policies and procedures, conduct employee training on those changes. And then ultimately I was the one who would spearhead the audit efforts when our firm was audited by the likes of JP Morgan Chase, Wells Fargo, City Mortgage. Uh, so when I began auditing law firms, providing default services on behalf of, of PHH and I transitioned into that new role, it, it was a pretty natural transition for me because it was essentially moving to the other side of the conference room table. Um, <laughs> and my, my experience working for the firm allowed me to key in on certain elements in the course of my audit that perhaps somebody without my background wouldn't catch. Um, and, and in that vein, I probably wouldn't have been nearly as thorough in an audit of a third party service provider that's offering IT related services as someone who had a background working for let's say a co-location data center provider where things like IT and cybersecurity are at the forefront of, of their day to day. Um, you know, so I, I think it is, again, to my initial point, really important to have the right players, um, you know, performing, performing these audits. And this, you know, this can vary from company to company, you know, in my position, uh, working with PHH, the auditor would essentially perform, perform the audit stem to stern, you know, and it, we were expected to be well versed in a lot of different areas with the input of subject matter experts or domain experts as needed. But I know that other risk management programs are structured in a more siloed way where the auditor is more of a facilitator who parses out and coordinates different portions of the audit to the subject matter experts and domain experts who then right. identify gaps and reach them back to the auditor to work the remediation. So, um, you know, that, that can vary, but ultimately I, I think the, the underlying issue is, is companies not having the right pieces in place um, to, to handle what needs to be done with that particular vendor. Um, and in addition to, you know, the appropriate allocation of, of those human resources, you know, I think it's equally important, again, to tailor the risk management program itself to the third party being reviewed. You know, as a mortgage service company, we wouldn't and shouldn't hold a law firm, uh, you know, providing default related services to the same standards as we would, you know, a third party data center. And yeah. you know, neither of those would or should be held to the same standards as a third party janitorial service or a Xerox repair company, for instance, you know. So yeah. there, there should, of course, be some standard of, of privacy, but um, and, and you wouldn't ask a default firm or a janitorial service to provide a SOC report, 
Um, and similarly, you might only ask a janitorial service, you know, to simply sign an NDA or some sort of privacy agreement, whereas such a minimalistic standard would not be sufficient in an audit of a third-party data center or a law firm that houses or has access to, to tons of confidential information. So I think it's really yeah. important to, one, have, you know, the right the right employees, the right auditors, the right subject matter experts in place. And I think it's, it's you know, also important to make sure you're tailoring the risk management program, uh, you know, to suit the needs of, of what you're trying to accomplish based on the vendor that is being audited. Yeah, have the right people, have the right tools, and then have the right approach, right? Absolutely. Yeah. No, you make a lot of good points um, in, in that the biggest struggle really is the complexity of the situation of trying to mitigate risk involve the third parties because it does, you're right, it, it varies in every organization, every industry. You can have two of the same companies on the outside and the inside, their structure totally different with different sets of expertise organized differently. So the approach has to be tailored, right? But then you have regulators that say you need to standardize your methodology for conducting third-party risk. And so there is that, that you do need to kind of have a systematic approach to doing it, but definitely needs to be tailored at the same time. So I, it definitely can get confusing. I, but, I hear you there. but, and, and, you know, to speak to how to overcome those challenges, because there are so many moving pieces uh, you know, I think it's uniformity is really important within the organization. Um, you know, having, creating a strong risk culture and ensuring that everybody is on the same page with their risk appetite and with their risk tolerance and the awareness of the risk, um, I think is really important communicating openly about that risk so that the whole organization, you know, can work in unison towards mitigating that risk in the face of all of the different variables in play. Really great point. Absolutely. Having a culture of risk management as opposed to some dedicated people that are the only ones paying attention. That's exactly. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, a, a whole collaborative approach is, is the best approach, uh, you know, to, to make sure that the right controls are in place, that the right risks are identified, that, you know, the, the right risk criticality is assigned and that that's done with uniformity across the board. Yeah, and not just training everybody on risk management and, and what to look out for, et cetera, but also having open lines of communication on what's discovered in the process. I think right. is also yeah. part of that. Absolutely. You know, the first line has to be communicating effectively with the second line and then from the second line to the third line, if that's the way that your organization structures it, um, right. you know, any governance groups, oversight committees, that they're communicating openly with the, you know, the, the people who are performing the day-to-day -day of trying to mitigate, identify and mitigate those risks. So, yeah, those open lines of, of communication and that overall awareness of, of risk um, is, is definitely critical. Yeah, and I think the biggest struggle with in doing that, we can all talk about and understand and, and and adapt the ideology of what third-party risk management should be, but the wall that people seem to hit up against is one of your first points is it's expensive. It's expensive to dedicate the resources and to organize those resources and to get the expertise or to get the tools that will help. 
Um, so with that, I want to kind of move over to my next question uh, is that law firms come up a lot. What do we do about the law firms? Are they somebody that is this an entity that we need to consider a third party, et cetera? What, you've had a lot of experience. You were on a team dedicated to assessing law firms. Um, I've learned a lot from you. We both work together at PHH and, and I'm still learning and I still get this questions and sometimes I still don't know how to answer them. Uh, so in, with your experience, uh, where do you think law firms fall in the, in the world of, of third party risk? So I hate to do this, but I'm going to pretty much reiterate um, the, the fact that <laughs> it, it varies. It, it varies a lot. You know, there's there's a lot of of different factors to be considered. Um, I do think that law firms should largely be considered a third party vendor, um, but I think that um, you know the firms being held to a certain third party risk pr program. Uh, will vary by industry, and more importantly, I think it varies based on the function or the service of the law firm. Um, in right. the mortgage banking and servicing industry, law firms could provide any number of services. They could be retained by the company in an of counsel or special counsel role. They could be retained for contract negotiation, for litigation purposes, or sometimes simply just to assist with jurisdiction-specific or topic-specific insights and um, you know, provide advice to assist in-house counsel. Um, so almost in a subject matter, a legal subject matter expert role. Um, right. And in those instances, I, I, where the firms aren't necessarily performing a day-to-day -day task on behalf of the company, I think they should be perceived, like I said, as more of a subject matter expert and shouldn't necessarily be held to a strict third-party risk program. Um, like a consultant. Conversely, I'm sorry? Like almost like a consultant. Exactly, almost like a consulting role. Um, and in those instances, you're really relying on them as the subject matter experts to kind of self-regulate. So I don't think it's necessarily as important for that risk management oversight piece to be in play when it, those are the functions being performed. But when it comes to law firms like the default related firms that I worked for and that I audited over the years, uh, I, I do think that it's definitely important they should absolutely be held to a third party risk program because of the day to day activities they perform and their access to MPI and other personal and confidential information. Um, and in addition to that, they're, they're constantly subject to the oversight of state and federal regulations you know, state regulations vary across the board, but they're all held to standards such as the FDCPA. Um, mm -hmm. You know, so it's, in that sense, it's really important that there be a layer of oversight that ensures they're complying with not only your organization specific requirements, but also to those legal regulations. And it's, again, a really tricky question because this is an area with a lot of variables, like it's the exact service being performed, the size and the mm -hmm. footprint of the firm, the jurisdictions in, in which the firm operates. Um, you know, just to give a brief example, if we're, we have a default firm that's handling foreclosures in New Jersey or New York, both of those are, are judicial jurisdictions and they have constant oversight by way of the court, which contemporaneously adds both a layer of protection and a degree of risk. The court acts as a layer of protection in some senses, but it also adds a degree of risk because legal pleadings that are filed are oftentimes public record and if something like a complaint, for example, were to be filed with an exposed social security number 
or an exposed loan number, you know, that's a huge privacy risk. Um, whereas a firm handling that same foreclosure in North Carolina or, or Mississippi, both of which are non-judicial states, you wouldn't have that layer of oversight provided by the court, but you also don't have the risk of filing a pleading with exposed MPPI because they go through the non-judicial process, which doesn't inco doesn't incorporate those those legal filings. So, um, you know, those are just a few of the ways where a slight variation, you know, state to state, um, function to function, you know, can have a direct impact on the critical risk of that vendor. Um, but ultimately, yeah, I, I think it, it largely depends on the services being provided and the risk appetite or risk tolerance of the individual organization that employs the firm. Um, but that said, I, I think all firms that are handling MPI, any confidential or proprietary information should at the very least have in place information security controls, business continuity plans, resiliency strategies because of the sensitive mm -hmm. information they possess. So uh, yeah. again, similar to one, it, it, it varies. So really, they just need to get a Chris Caputo to come on board and so that you can translate a lot of these <laughs> uh, <laughs> legal situations and caveats. But no, to that same point, you, um, you referenced to kind of go back to those core factors on whether or not an organization, any organization poses a risk to yours, which is, are you sharing information? Are we relying on you heavily? Uh, what are you doing for us particularly, and how do we scope our assessment based off of that? Not necessarily carving out an entire entity such as law firms to make the process easier or to kind of cut down on the amount of assessments you need to do in a year, but to get a better understanding of which ones pose the most risk and then structuring your 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 assessments from there. Uh, that is great information, Chris. Thank you. I love continuously learning from people in this industry. You think you know a lot, and then you're taken by surprise. Everybody has their own piece of the puzzle. Um, oh, I absolutely. Shift, you, can, yeah. you can fill books with what I don't know, <laughs> but you know, <laughs> it's it's a it's a constant. Yeah, it's a constant learning process, and. You know, to, to your point, it is largely about collaboration, not not only within your organization, but collaborating with other people and getting those different perspectives and then, you know, kind of using that to tailor what's right for you, what's right for your organization. Yeah. Yeah. Great advice. Um, I want to shift gears to current events and the pandemic, people working from home. Uh, how has this changed third-party risk? What is life like in the industry right now, real-time, trying to get assessments completed or um, regulatory compliance that might have shifted? What have you noticed in the last few months that has changed in, in this industry, be it mortgage banking, legal? What, what have you noticed? Well, fortunately for me, it's slowed down quite a bit. <laughs> so, many, so many state <laughs> agencies and, and, you know, departments of audit, divisions of banking, you know, they're, they're kind of, um, you know, slowing down, you know, in, in the face of this pandemic. So uh, it, luckily for me, I've, I've had a pretty easy going past couple of months, but, um, you know, there, there's going to be a, a ton, a ton of, of changes, um, you know, that I see hmm. coming, coming our way. Um, I think it does depend on the industry, but specific to the mortgage banking industry, 
Um, there are a few things that I see in the works, you know, that or that I could see happening. Um, you know, one of them, as you noted, is that a lot of people are shifting to a remote environment. They have to. Um, and I think that this pandemic has kind of thrown gas on an already blazing movement towards online and remote activities. I mean, everything from working to shopping to, to banking, you can do more and more without ever leaving your couch. Uh, but yeah. because of that, there's inherent risks, you know, and, and so mm -hmm. I see, you know, potential enhancements to things like the red flags rule, um, the safeguards rule, the privacy rule under the Graham-Leach-Bliley Act. Uh, to include requirements for stronger identity verification and authentication, yeah. you know, particularly with respect to online banking, um, you know, and another thing I see, although not so much because of the pandemic, but one thing that I, I definitely see happening is the far-reaching impact of the Californians for Consumer Privacy Act that took effect at the beginning mm -hmm. of the year um, and, and how that's been somewhat of a catalyst for additional privacy and security bills at a state level. Um, we've already seen Washington, New Hampshire, and, and Illinois already following suit. Um, I think if it continues to pick up steam on that state level, uh, it's only a matter of time before that pressure starts to mount for it to become a federal law, especially because prior to the pandemic, we were already moving towards such a, a remote environment. Um, you know, people aren't going into the office nearly as much. People aren't going to the banks nearly as much. You can, you know, tap the button on your phone and you can deposit a check, you can withdraw, you can transfer balances, you know. So um, I think that the, the, the CCPA that came into effect for being here is, is definitely going to uh, continue to pick up steam and, and build momentum towards that becoming, uh, you know, federal. Uh, one, one of the other things, that I see too is just the ripple effect that the pandemic is going to have and is going to continue to have on the economy. Um, with employment rates at this level, it's inevitably going to lead to increased forbearance efforts, which we've already seen. It's going to lead to increased defaults, increased abandonments, and there's going to be a huge tidal wave of bankruptcies coming. And what I expect to be record-breaking numbers of mega bankruptcies, which are filings by companies with over a billion dollars or more in debt. Um, and I think that these factors could result in an economic impact that matches or even exceeds what we saw the year after the subprime housing crisis, you know, back 2008. Um, and when that crisis occurred, it resulted in things like the Dodd-Frank Wall Street reform and Consumer Protection Act, you know, which amongst other things, created the CFPB. And I understand that the housing crisis was somewhat of a, a self-created monster. There was a predictable bubble that was bound to burst because of the way that subprime mortgages were being handled, uh, mm -hmm. whereas no one could have predicted the impact of a global pandemic. Um, but I still imagine that there will be changes, things like forbearance requirements and options, um, perhaps even making them mandatory in extraordinary cases like COVID-19. Um, perhaps oversight of refinancing activities, which are at an all-time high. Uh, and then most importantly, once the dust settles, there's going to have to be some really creative measures that are taken to restructure the debt that will inevitably be left by all of the forbearance that we've seen over the past several months. Um, and, and if they don't come up with creative ways to restructure that debt, uh, we could potentially be left in a worse situation than we were in 2008. Um, you know, so I, I think it's really important to, to keep a close eye on that. Um, 
And then again, to, to what we touched on previously, there's such an increased susceptibility to, to cyber attacks, um, particularly with respect right. to you know unsecured devices and networks. A lot of these companies weren't prepared for a COVID-19 and they weren't prepared for the amount of people that they would need to have working remotely they may not have had the inventory to ensure that everyone was working on a company-issued device that has appropriate encryption and security controls. So some employees may be left to access the network using a personal laptop or device that doesn't have that same level of security, which wouldn't create huge issues. And that's not even to mention the social engineering aspect, um, you know, that mm-hmm. comes with a shift to the remote environment. Um, without the lack of direct oversight and supervision that you get in an office and the secure environment that an office provides, people may be more vulnerable to social engineering. You know, all it takes is for one employee working in their apartment on their laptop, you know, leave their laptop open and walk away while, say, a maintenance worker is fixing their AC unit, you know, and then that, that you know, maintenance worker has unrestricted access to all this confidential and proprietary information because you didn't lock your screen or you didn't close your laptop. Um, you know, a friend comes over and may not be entirely trustworthy and, you know, is able to steal a social security number because you didn't lock your desktop when you went to the bathroom. You know, there are just so many things that could go wrong so quickly because of one lapse of judgment. And I feel like people are inherently more prone to that lapse of judgment without being in the controlled environment of an office. Yeah, that's a really great point. And even just something so simple as to not having a secure Wi-Fi or a lot of devices automatically connect to available Wi-Fi. And you might not even realize it if you don't have the proper protections on your devices, whether it be because the company didn't have the resources to implement that on their devices or you're using your personal device because they didn't have extra for everyone to work from home. Um, But yeah, people are relaxed at home. So that's a really great point. Uh, among many that you've just made, um, knowing and you can find out who the leaders of certain industries are in open source information and, and, and where they could be located. And I don't want to give keys away to all the things running through my mind and what people could potentially do. But, <laughs> yeah, that's a really great point. Um, something to think about for sure. People, people let their guard down pretty easily, even in the office. <laughs> Absolutely. And again, that's another factor that ties back to cost, you know, the cost of, you know, not just performing the audits and having a strong risk management program in place, but mitigating the risk internally of do we have, you know, the the resources to provide every employee with a secure laptop or with a secure phone or, you know, anything like that, again, all ties back to cost. So it's, it's something that's definitely difficult and nobody could have really seen this pandemic coming or or at least, you know, the impact that it that would have, you know, over the past couple of months. I'm guilty of that myself. When all this first started, I thought, you know, maybe a couple of weeks we have to stay indoors and wear a mask. And, you know, six or, you know, four months later, whatever it may be, here we are still in, still in quarantine, still working from home full time. You know, so I don't think anybody was truly prepared for uh, you know, the the extent of what we're experiencing right now. Right. And and you brought a point that I didn't even think of much is that all the bankruptcies and, and the trickle down effect that we're gonna see in the in the years, months and years to come even, 
and looking at history, the regulations that have come out of circumstances like this, and you're right, we're probably definitely going to start to learn some new acronyms that are both a blessing <laughs> and a curse on all our lives to protect us, and yet another uh, guidance to adhere to. Um, really great information, Chris. I'm really thankful that you have taken the time to join us. Do you have any other, any remaining thoughts or best practices or tips that you want to share before we wrap it up? No, just, you know, really reiterating kind of the, the overall theme of, of what I've been trying to say is, is just, you know, the importance of allocating resources appropriately so that you're playing to your employee's strength, um, you know, and that there's, uh, you have all of the tools that you would need at your disposal to perform a thorough audit and identify all the risks that are out there and work towards mitigating them, uh, you know, and the importance of creating a strong risk culture to ensure that everybody is on the same page. Um, I think uniformity is imperative in identifying and mitigating these risks and it's hugely important to communicate openly about those risks so that the whole organization is aware, you know, and can work in unison to mitigate those. So um, that's, I, I think, really the the key element to it. And, and that's really the only way to address all of the different moving pieces is just trying to stay ahead of the curve, openly communicating about what needs to be done what the expectations are and working as a team to, you know, alleviate those, those risks. Yeah, absolutely. That's great advice. Great best practices. It's been great talking to you. Big thanks again, Chris Caputo, external audit coordinator at CMG financial. Uh, We hope you all had a good time today listening to Chris and I talk. Uh, in today's Thought Leadership Interview Podcast. And please be on the lookout for more of these interviews in the future. Thanks, Nicole. Thank you.